0: This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Neelay Patel. Neelay is a third-year medical student at University of Tennessee Health Science Center, College of Medicine. He received his bachelor's in neuroscience from the University of Michigan in 2017. Neelay, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, John. Thanks for having me.
0: So we're uh, just starting to get into 2021 here, um, and obviously the the COVID pandemic has go- been going on for a long time, and I imagine that's had uh, kind of a large effect on uh, your medical education in, in 2020. So can you just describe, you know, some of the changes that had to be made uh, in light of what was going on with COVID?
1: So... I was a second-year medical student when the pandemic started, so I guess around March of 2020 is when all of this kind of came to the U.S. Um, and actually, it's affected every year of medical school differently. So, as a second year, I was just finishing um, my like, like my didactics for the for that school year, um, and getting into studying for step one, which is our first uh, board exam that we take at the end of our second year. Um, So it didn't really affect my school very much, um, but it did affect when I was able to take step one, which um, I don't know if you've talked to other medical students about step one, but it's kind of like the beast that's looming over your first two years of medical school. Um, So generally what happens is you get uh, six to eight week dedicated study period, um, which I was just getting into when COVID hit, um, and so there was kind of this uncertainty on whether we would even be able to take the test. And kind of two, three weeks into my dedicated study period, when you know you should have hundred percent of your con- concentration on studying for this massive test, kind of over our sh- over, over our shoulders, we were. Like worrying about whether we'll even be able to take it with this huge pandemic that's happening. Um, and when, what ended up happening is the test centers actually closed and people's tests got delayed and delayed. Um, I was originally scheduled for April and ended up having to take it in um, October. So in the middle of my third year, which is kind of unprecedented. Um, usually you have to take the test in order to start your third year of med- medical school, but um, today's obviously, or this year is obviously an exceptional year. So they had to make some exceptions.
0: So even as I understand, uh, even before COVID, there was this like trend in medical schools, which m- my cousin, he's a, he's an older physician. He's like 50 years old now. And, and we, when he heard about this trend, it was kind of bizarre to him that students don't really attend lectures. They kind of just go through, like you said, like the didactics on their own. So is this. It's something that is is basically preeminent at University of Tennessee. And could you just like uh, elaborate on how that sort of affects the educational experience of just kind of doing everything uh, sort of on your own as opposed to a lecture setting?
1: So uh, that is one of the kind of misconceptions about medical school is that the first two years are purely lectures, just like, you know, you would imagine undergrad being. Um, But it's a mix of, you know, anatomy lab. Ah uh, first semester for us, which is obviously in person and required. Um, and then we have different clinical kind of teaching sessions, maybe once or twice per week that are required and in person. Um, and then just on the lecture side, um, some of them are required, and um, some of them and all of them are recorded, and you can watch them at a later time, but some are required to be attended in person. Um, so it's not like that it's not like you're you know, in your apartment for a week at a time, you know, just grinding through these lectures, you'll, you'll have a couple, two or three times where you'll, where you'll have to go to, to campus to do in-person sessions.
0: Can you also uh, talk about the structure of your clinical rotations that, t- that starts in, like you said, your third year, right? And how are you sort of, how, you know, what's your sort of workflow? How, how are you assessed during that time, et cetera?
1: So there's seven core rotations um, that every medical student does during third year. Um, Let's see if I can remember them all right now. Pediatrics, um, OBGYN, medicine, family medicine, surgery, uh, psychiatry, and neurology. So those are the seven core rotations that every med student does. um, And those kind of lay the groundwork for, you know, getting exposure to many different specialties in medicine. And then um, during your fourth year, you kind of have more freedom to decide uh, what what more you want to pursue in your junior internships and so forth. Um, So right now, I'm working on my core rotations. I've done uh, pediatrics. I've done half of my OBGYN rotation. Um, I've done neurology and psychiatry. And I just finished internal medicine. And I'm about to start family medicine. So Um, I've gotten a pretty wide range of exposure to, um, to different specialties. And like I said, every medical student does go through these. So it's, it's nice to kind of see things that you might not have been exposed to in the past, um, during your shadowing or, um, any other previous experiences that you've had, um, in terms of being evaluated, um, it's kind of a mix between, um, clinical evaluations by your attending physicians during your rotations, and the shelf exam, which is the exam that you take at the end of every rotation. And that's a standardized exam um, put on by the NBME um, that every med student takes at the end of their core rotations. So you kind of get that same standardized test evaluation, as well as how you are with patients interacting with patients, interacting with the medical team with your attending physicians um, and things like that so it's a little bit different from from how you're evaluated from the first two years which is purely um, based on your test scores
0: yeah can you talk more about how you're you're in a clinical setting but you know you're still a medical student so what are some of the boundaries of uh, that are set of things that you can do and can't do you know things that you can tackle or other things that perhaps uh, your attending physician has to take care of
1: so I guess I can speak more to um, the medicine rotation because that's just what I came off of, but obviously it's a little bit different for um, whether you're inpatient or outpatient and what rotation you're on. But for medicine, since it is pretty general, I guess it's it can broadly apply to most of the other rotations as well. So kind of like taking you through a day of, of what I did as a medical student on my medicine rotation. Uh, we would get there in the morning, um, around 6 a.m. and we would be assigned three to four patients for the day that were on our team and um, we would go talk to them see how they did overnight um, see if there were any changes overnight any uh, problems Um, and then we would kind of lay down the plan for today um, and kind of what we were working towards and you know what medications they're taking and then obviously asking if they have any questions about their hospital stay and how it's going. Um, And then after that, we would kind of discuss what we got, what information we got from the patient with the residents. So the residents are kind of like the first line, the first people that we kind of go over the plan with. Um, They're like the, the, they're like our main partners as medical students. Um, And then after discussing with the residents, we'll go on team rounds with the attending. Um, And the attending will, will actually be, Before the attending goes into the room, we, as medical students, present the patient. Um, So during COVID, it's been a little bit different. Sometimes we do table rounds where we just kind of sit in the office and go over the patient list and we present there. Um, Normally what would happen is you would go around to each room and present outside of the room or inside of the room um, in front of the patient. Um, But it's kind of been varied um, since COVID is very real right now. Um, So... We would present the patient, go over our assessment and plan for what that patient um, is going through uh, for the day, and then um, the attending would either agree with it or add something, and then we would all go into the room and, and talk to the patient together. Um, kind of in terms of like what we as medical students can tackle, that's kind of one of the, the gray areas and one of the fine lines that you have to try to maneuver, um, because obviously we're in training. Uh, we're not doctors yet, um, so we don't know. We don't know 100% about every disease process or every medication, um, and sometimes patients have very specific questions that we're not um, in a position to answer. Um, and so, you know, about simple things such as like hypertension, diabetes. If there are if they are questions that we feel comfortable answering and that we feel we have the adequate knowledge to answer then we certainly can, but um, some of the times uh, we kind of have to defer that to either the residents or the attendings um, and kind of just say, you know, try to bring that up when we come back with the, with the attending and the resident um, and then go from there.
0: Yeah, you've done a pretty great job painting a picture of kind of what's involved with your, your medical education. So we've, we've talked about your didactics Step one. Now you're in your clinical rotations. You're going to be taking step two, and then so, where in that whole timeline do you kind of contemplate and and put forth uh, your your, you know, choices for a specialty?
1: So that kind of comes in at any point during your medical career, I guess. Uh, some people come in knowing they want to do orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery or they want to be a gi doctor and and that's great and a lot of the times they do end up doing that um but oftentimes what what i've heard like anecdotally from other medical students um, and other doctors is that they come in thinking they're going to do one thing and change their mind about 10 times and end up being something completely different um but in terms of the timeline uh during your fourth years when you really have to decide but during your third year, I think, is when, when you're going through your core clerkships is when you kind of fall into one category or the other, whether that be a medicine or surgery. Um, and once you've decided that, then you can kind of start to narrow things down as you experience them during your rotations. Um, and then during your fourth year, uh, like I said, you, can, you have more freedom to decide what rotations you want to pursue further. And um, kind of explore further.
0: A tangent to that, I think a big uh, trend that's pre- pre- prevalent in medicine is the the shortage of primary care physicians. So, ha- just being a medical student, have you noticed that people are sort of steering away from primary care, or you know, um, people are giving you feedback to either do primary care or not? Have has, have you kind of seen? Uh, you know, the evidence as to why there is a shortage of primary care physicians during your, your medical education?
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of it is, you know, primary care, uh, the compensation is generally a bit less, um, and there's less glamor in it, um, as well as people don't really want, uh, end up treating, you know, like hypertension, diabetes, I think it's maybe kind of boring or kind of mundane. They want to do, you know, quote unquote, cooler things um, in their medical career. Um, And some of those things might be true. Uh, Obviously, it's a matter of opinion, um, what people think about primary care. Um, But I think one of the one of the good things that I have seen is that there are starting to they're starting to have more programs um, designed to kind of keep people kind of uh, steer people into primary care. Um, One of the, one of the ones that comes to mind is, um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but they'll actually pay for your medical school. um, If you, in, in, like in, if you trade four years of your, um, clinical time to serving an underserved population, whether that be in some rural area or the VA or something like that. Um, So I think that's one of the, that's one of the, those are one of the, those are the programs that are going to be kind of helpful to um, bringing some people into primary care. Um, Because yeah, from what I've seen, um, there kind of is this, not negative not negative view but this people people generally just kind of shy away from you know family medicine and things like that uh most people who do like internal medicine want to subspecialize or do some sort of fellowship afterwards
0: have you seen uh in the workflow of a hospital sort of evidence that uh say, like, phys- physician's assistants or nurse practitioners or perhaps some other, uh, you know, healthcare practitioner are, are, is filling that vacuum where there aren't enough primary care physicians and providing that sort of, like you said, care for diabetes, hypertension, a lot of, uh, you know, common conditions? So I
1: think nurse practitioners and physician assistants and, you know, kind of advanced um, advanced practitioners generally come more into play in the outpatient setting and so they definitely are um, present in, in the inpatient setting which um, as a med student I have you know more experience with um, so I've seen um, you know nurse practitioner nurse practitioners working working with the neurology team uh, working with nephrology uh, rheumatology um, but you know when you hear about these massive practices of you know like 20 nurse practitioners being overseen by one doctor those kinds of things that you see in in the news those are those are more in the outpatient setting Um, uh, so no i don't really have i don't really see that too often um, as a med student
0: tangent to your your uh earlier comment about you know compensation of of primary care physicians right like uh, according to American Association of Medical Colleges, twenty in 2019, the average debt for a uh, medical student after they leave school is $200,000. So um, is that something just, just more like qualitatively, is that just something, uh, you know, you feel um, like amongst the student body that that's kind of like a big pressure, A, to like, you know, steer your specialty and B, it's just kind of a big, you know, weight on your shoulder that you're, you know. In some way, things kind of just have to work out because you sort of have uh, that large sum of debt at the end of the road.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's yeah, like you said, it's like the, it's like a weight on the shoulders, and sometimes that's kind of the the monster that is is chasing medical students, you know, and that's what guides their decisions. Um, and it's unfortunate that that's kind of the system that we have right now, and hopefully it'll, it'll change in the future. Um, but yeah, I definitely see that. And I definitely hear that when I'm talking to my peers. Um, hopefully, hopefully, like I said, in the future, things will change. But but right now, I think that might be one of the, you know, causative factors um, as to why there is a shortage of, of primary care doctors. Because um, if you end up in a in a specialty where you're doing procedures, like, if you do GI or cardiology or things like that, or if you obviously end up in surgery, the compensation is much more and you can pay off your debt much faster. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like the, the, the weight on your shoulders is just imagery, like hits me right that cause cause stress and burnout are already issues within the medical profession. So is that, you know, th- that's obviously one thing, uh, you know, the financial burden, um, d- you know, dealing with, with poor patient outcomes, things like that. Uh, do you feel like you're, uh, like UT and in-, in general sort of medical education is e- equipping students with, uh, you know, skills to-, to cope with the stress of the job?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, UT in particular has done a really good job. We have wellness initiatives. We have, um, we have this um, kind of department called Sassy. I can't remember what it stands for. I'm sorry. We, 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 we all call it Sassy. So, uh, but it's this group of counselors and what we call education specialists that we can go to if we're struggling or even if we're not struggling, if we want to just go over how we study um, how we're coping with medical school. Um, we have professionals that we can talk to for free and in confidence um, and uh, you know, the administration won't know that you're there or what you talked about. Um, and so they have tons and tons of resources for us to kind of reach out um, and and make sure we are addressing, like, every part of our, our health, whether that be our educational health, mental health, physical health, um, all of those things. And, um, you know, the thing about med school is, and the thing that I loved most about first and second year was the people, the the classmates. Um, obviously, I've made really great friends, and friends that I hope to keep for the rest of my life. And, you know, it's, it's unlike undergrad in that everybody is going through the same thing. Um, you're, you're all in the same boat. And you have to kind of support each other through it. Um, and you know what everybody else is going through. So you know how to support them through it. Um, during third and fourth year, actually during third year, what I've found is that, uh, you know, being in different cities, cause I- I'm in Knoxville right now. A lot of my friends are in Memphis doing their rotations. Um, it has been a little bit difficult because, um, I've been away from a few of my friends that have been kind of my rocks during the first and second year. Um, and it's really, you know, put into perspective how, how nice it was to have them around, um, pretty much every day, um, during the first two years. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of, of things as to how you cope with the stress and potential burnout, um, in medical school.
0: I want to look at just the larger picture of, you know, healthcare in the U S. Um, obviously the, the big, um, issue for a lot of people is just moving towards like a more centralized healthcare system. Uh, I think it's often, often people kind of group that into some, like, you know, some blanket term of like socialized medicine, but there's definitely, I think a lot of different ways about uh, going about that. And I feel like in in, correct me if I'm wrong, that doctors in general can be sort of skeptical of, you know, a more centralized approach. A lot because of the compensation piece that it might not, um, the, the, the compensation might not be there with the more centralized system. But, you know, younger people in general are for, I believe, are for like more of a, a centralized approach to medicine. So as a medical, young medical student, you're kind of straddling those two lines between, you know, being a practitioner and sort of being like a young um, <laughs> a young person yeah. in the United States in the year 2020. So, uh, are, do you, do you find that medical students are more into like, you know, uh, like a more centralized healthcare approach?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, as, as any future, any future clinician, um, who cares for the well-being of others, which I hope all future clinicians do care for the well-being of others, generally want more people to have access to healthcare and have cheaper health care. Um, I think that's one of the, the massive problems in the U S and, you know, sometimes we compare ourselves to Canada and the UK and, and these, these places that do have a centralized um, medical system. Um, but on the flip side, uh, the compensation is one of the allures of, being a physician in the United States, so yeah, how do you balance that? Um, and I think the way I look at it is, um, the system isn't going to change like super rapidly. It's going to be a very, very um, slow and methodical change, if there is if there is a change. Um, you know, like the average doctor isn't going to start making $200,000 as opposed to $400,000, you know, um, from one year to the next. Um, And so I think, I think the whole fear of a single payer of a universal healthcare system or socialized medicine, as some people like to call it, is kind of over-exaggerated and blown out a little bit, um, which is unfortunate because I think the idea of it is, Good and would be good for most Americans, um, but yeah, like I said, um, I don't think I don't think things will change super rapidly, so I don't think it's something to have too much concern about.
0: But so you you would say though that actual. Like physicians you've interacted with, not that you're, you know, <laughs> you're on your clinical rotation talking healthcare policy necessarily. <laughs> like you said, you're talking more about uh, patients' blood sugar and their blood pressure. But <laughs> um, is that is that fair to say that like the you know the medical establishment uh, is generally against this, and and I'm sure they do have a lot of uh, you know push in our political system and otherwise uh, to potentially steer things away from a centralized healthcare system.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that's a fair thing to say because, you know, a lot of the people who do, like you said, have the influence in in politics and who do influence policy are of the older generation and have more traditional conservative views. Um, obviously that's a generalization. Um, but yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say.
0: If you were to kind of just, uh, assess our healthcare system in general, what's what's one thing that's working and maybe one thing that's not working so well?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, one thing that's working really well is more Americans have access to healthcare um, and health insurance right now than I think ever before. Um, and the cost of that healthcare is a different question, but um, most most Americans... Do have access to healthcare, which is a good thing, Um, and the quality of that healthcare is generally very good. Um, Now, obviously, you have some rural areas, you know, in like central United States and the the western part of the United States, where the primary care shortage is actually hitting a little bit, little bit harder. Um, But for the majority of Americans, I think that's, I think that's, it's a good thing. one thing that's not working well, uh, maybe the cost of health care. You hear kind of these horror stories about um, hospital debt and people having collections sent after them. And I think, you know, like you said, as a younger person, I believe health care is a right, not a privilege. Um, and I don't think people should be being sent, should be like being sent to jail or having collections sent after them just for you know, receiving the medical treatment that they deserve.
0: Another maybe criticism that I've been hearing a lot recently is just this feeling of, and, and you might have a more insights into this since you're doing your your clinical rotations in, in medicine and internal medicine and so forth, that, you know, when you when you go in to see your doctor, um, a lot of times it, it can just be like they're, they're, they're sort of, going through the motions that they have to fill in everything on their computer screen. Um, and they, they don't really get that, that, you know, full attention that they would like that, you know, perhaps the, the visit can only be 15 minutes because the doctor has to see, you know, 40 patients or, you know, within their workday. So is that is that something that is that in your eyes that you've seen maybe isn't working so well that the, the patients and, and doctors aren't uh, able to get the full quality visit that maybe either side would like to have?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, I have, I have seen that firsthand where a doctor will go into a patient's room during, yeah, like you said, what would be scheduled for about 15 or 20 minute appointment. And um, for the, for the first five minutes, he'll talk to the patient, um, maybe listen to their heart and lungs. (laughs) um, And then for the next 10 or 15 minutes, he'll be clicking on the computer or typing or even dictating into the computer um, in the patient room while the patient's sitting there, you know, just quietly looking around. Um, Then they'll ask if they have any questions. Um, Sometimes the patients are, you know, pressured to say no, uh, don't have any questions, and and they'll move on to the next patient. Um, And I think that has been a big problem since the implementation of the electronic medical record system. Um, I think it's been around 10 or 12 years now um, since the EMR has been implemented. Um, and a lot of the problems that I see is that the technology is not perfect. Um, it does require a lot of kind of clicking and making sure you're on the right screen, and clicking the right things and filling out everything completely. Um, and so that has been one of the challenges of, of being a doctor transitioning from paper charts where Maybe you were just jotting down a few things and checking a few boxes during a visit, um, to filling out these really complicated notes and orders and doing all these things, and still maintaining the same patient load. Um, I I heard about I heard experiences firsthand from my from my dad who's a doctor. Um, he had some struggles going from paper charts to the EMR, um, and. I've seen it kind of firsthand in the outpatient setting, um, in the hospital. Like with you know younger residents and with younger attendings, um, it becomes less of an issue because um, most most residents and attendings don't walk around with a the computer. They'll kind of just go into the room and jot down anything they need to, and finish their notes and orders outside of the room after they're done talking with the patient. But like you, like you said, there is some of this added pressure of, you know, this time crunch, um, and, you know, um, uh, having to put in all of these things in the computer afterwards and, you know, whether you will you'll remember everything and all these things. Um, so yeah, that's a really good point that you brought up about, about the EMR.
0: Yeah. I think the EMR, it's just so, cause on one hand you're like, you... Like like paper is on the way out, right? So you you right. you sort of need something like electronic, and and the EMR uh, makes my job kind of easy. I'm in I'm in research, so I need to make sure that you know uh, that the orders are placed and that you know they're not billed for. In my case, MRIs, um, but from like the the criticisms, I think which some of what you mentioned, right, is that. like like sort of what's nice about paper is there's sort of like a a nuance to it. Like you, you can, there, you can kind of, you know, articulate like certain things about a patient better on paper, as opposed to like using these pre-selected conditions or, or, um, you know, diagnoses through, through the EMR that, that is kind of just designed for, for billing. Right. So it just seems like, it, it, it seems like a big point of distress. Like, you know, one physician I was talking to was saying like, you know, that the EMR is, is part of the downfall of, of, you know, 21st century medicine. And...
1: And, and I think one of the other problems with it is, you know, we, before the EMR was established, we, we saw it as this sort of holy grail, you know, like everything will be in this one centralized system about every patient will be able to see. All of their previous visits, all of their previous lab tests and imaging, um, and every condition that they have, it'll all be in this one spot where we can kind of have a full picture of the patient without having to do a lot of digging or request a lot of detective lot of,
0: work. Right? <laughs>
1: a lot of detective work, exactly, and requesting records from other hospitals or other clinicians. But it isn't like that. <laughs> um, Obviously, it has taken it has taken some of the detective work out of it. Um, you know, if a patient has been to your, to your hospital in the past, you're you're able to pull up um, previous labs and imaging and you know um, previous physician's notes. But if they're not in the same system, you do end up having to do detective work and making phone calls and having records sent over. Um, and it's kind of more of the same that you know more of the same issue. That we thought we had solved with the EMR, and so I think that's one of the main criticisms of it, is that obviously it's still young, um, but there are definitely definitely some improvements that need to be made.
0: On all the different things, you know, we've touched with healthcare accessibility, the EMR, um, right? It's part of this this general, you know, you hear all this noise about like the brokenness of our healthcare system, and I guess now my question to you would be, is that something that you know, your medical school acknowledges that like our healthcare system is broke, like is, is broken in a way, or is that something that's kind of, you know, not talked about, you're just kind of stick to, to, to your didactics and clinical rotations.
1: Um, like every medical medical school obviously has to, you know, train medical students based on, you know, what the, LCME requires, and there are certain things that, that every medical school needs to teach their students. Um, some of these other things, such as addressing the healthcare system, and you know what problems may or may not um, may, that what problems it may or may not have. Um, other things like social determinants of health, um, kind of implicit bias, all these kinds of things that are definitely relevant to. Um, our futures as clinicians. Those are kind of up to individual medical, stu- medical schools to um, acknowledge as much or as little as they want. Um, UT has done a great job of talking about kind of the social determinants of health. Um, you know, going through um, implicit bias, how, how um, physicians may or may not influence uh, be influenced. Sorry to be influenced in how they um, treat their patients, uh, whether they be African American or Asian or um, any other race or creed. Um, in terms of the healthcare system and it being broken, you know, we haven't really touched on that too too much. Um, it's kind of up to the individual student to kind of dive into that as much as, as much as they want.
0: When you look at, uh, you know, medicine on the whole, um, I think uh, one of our previous episodes, uh, Dr. Chidi Parikh, she's a integrative medicine physician at New York Presbyterian. And we were kind of talking about, you know, the art and the science of medicine and science, obviously being, you know, the very, the, the mechanisms of, 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 of things that go on your, in your body and, and, and the anatomy and how things work and the art being kind of related to the more of the soft side, right? The, the holistic healthcare, the really, you know, seeing uh, the patient as a whole. Uh, do you feel as a medical student that, uh, you know, you've, you've gotten education that kind of uh, puts emphasis on both the art and the science of medicine?
1: Most definitely. Um, And I think the first two years of medical school are are more geared towards the science of medicine. Um, And third and fourth year is really when you learn the art, um, because, you know, you're observing residents and attendings interact with patients all the time. And you kind of develop your own style based on um, people's approaches that you liked or you kind of reject certain methods based on people's approaches that you didn't like. And so.
0: What do you, what, what do you mean by that? Like like an approach you would like or, or dislike, what would be an example of that?
1: Um, so some people kind of some residents that I've seen some attendings kind of approach their patients as diagnoses. Um, they don't really take the time to ask about uh, maybe some social factors or some other factors that might be playing into um, a patient's well-being and how they're presenting to the hospital. I can't really think of a specific example off the top of my head, but um, I have seen res. I have seen actually a few residents who, who kind of refer to their patients by their diagnoses or their room numbers. You know, they kind of think about they think about these patients as not people, but as diagnoses and. That's kind of one of the approaches that I've rejected. Even during the, our first and second year of med school, we were taught always refer to patients by their names. Um, they are a person who has hypertension. They are not, you know, hypertension in room number 12. Um, and so you kind of go in to talking to that patient with that approach. Um, they are a person first and foremost. And so you kind of learn their story, learn you know, what factors might be playing into their disease process. And then you kind of take how you treat their disease, disease process from there. Um, you don't go in with, you know, these preconceived notions of, you know, why they might have hypertension or diabetes or um, something like that. Um, kind of go in with an open mind and, and see this person as a person first um, and, and go from there.
0: Yeah, right on you don't want to dehumanize any of your patients, right? Most definitely. All right. The last question I have for you here is that people who, who have, you know, gone into medicine or who have decided to forego medicine, you know, there's just sort of this vibe you get from people. And it's something to the tune of like, you know, being a doctor takes a really long time, right? Like, one, one physician was kind of saying to me, you know, if you want to be an orthopedic surgeon, that's, that's 10 years of your life, uh, you know, right there. And that sort of elicits a sense of, you know, that, (laughs) that it's just like a a really hard 10 years and that you're, you're, you're foregoing a lot of other things. And like, I guess my question to you is now that you're sort of in the middle of your, you know, medical education experience is that like, Do you feel like you're, you're sort of missing out on other things that you could have been doing, but you've decided to take this long road to medicine?
1: Yeah. I I think that is a very common view about, uh, about medicine is that you're, you're literally wasting your prime of your life, like your twenties and your early thirties are when your body is at its like peak, you know, your mind is at its peak and you're wasting away your life, you know? Uh, but then there's the other way to look at it. Um, and when you were asking me that question, actually, it, it brought to mind a, a meme that I saw on the medical school subreddit. Um, I think it was something like, um, uh, as a med, as a med student, you know, I'll be happy when I graduate medical school as a resident, I'll be happy when I get into this fellowship as a fellow, I'll be happy when I'm an attending. Um, and then as an attending, I'll be happy when I retire. Um, And it's kind of this, you know, I'll be happy when this next thing happens or this next thing happens. You forget to be happy now and to live in the moment. So I think that was a good reminder of just like appreciate what you have now. Um, It's not like medicine is consuming your life. You know, it's like as a medical student, I still have free time to do, you know, do what I like to to pursue my hobbies. Um, Now, obviously I have a little bit less time than someone who's working in normal Um, you know like eight to four eight to five job but um, I think that's that's the key to it is is just remember that there's always going to be this next step where you think you'll you'll have more time or you'll have more happiness or more freedom Um, but sometimes that looking forward that that thinking about looking forward makes you forget to to think about now and, and enjoying now
0: all right on that note it's time for a lightning round a series right. of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. So, Neelay, first question I have for you: What grosses you out at the hospital?
1: Uh, terrible smells. <laughs> I'm
0: sure there is no shortage of terrible smells at the hospital, right? Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of bodily fluids. How do you, uh, you, I guess, with the, has the mask helped uh, with COVID in? you know, sort of minimizing that uh, trauma? Uh,
1: most, most definitely. But sometimes when you're using your N95, that was meant to be used for, you know, one or two days. And you're going on like two weeks of using it. It loses its effectiveness.
0: <laughs> Altoids, baby. Altoids. <laughs> what is your go-to strategy for coping with stress?
1: Um, rock climbing. Um, I've I recently gotten into rock climbing um, as a first-year medical student. And in Memphis, there's this awesome gym called Memphis Rocks, um, and so every time I was every time I was feeling stressed out, I would just go rock climb. And I had my whole climbing friends group who I would always run into at least one or two people when I was there, and it kind of got my mind off of medical school because it, it can be it can be hard to kind of get out of the bubble of medical school um, during the first couple of years because you're always thinking about thinking about school, always studying with your friends who are in your class or in the class below or above you. Um, so so being at the gym was definitely that thing for me to, to kind of get away from it.
0: Besides rock climbing, I also understand you've been hitting the links a little bit. Is that correct?
1: Ah, yes, I have been getting back into it since my middle school days.
0: <laughs> so uh, what is your uh, favorite uh, club in the golf bag?
1: Ooh, it's got to be four or five iron i think four iron
0: that's pretty uncommon i would say
1: (laughs) yeah i i I can't hit wedges i can't hit my short irons but somehow my long irons just they just go
0: well that's a that's that's definitely a club i struggle with so maybe you have to give me a lesson on that (laughs) i hate the Um, driver (laughs) driver's in the doghouse right um what is the medical specialty you hope to pursue
1: so right now i'm thinking about either radiology or internal medicine um and potentially gi after after internal medicine but still
0: deciding nice you can you can come and hang out with me at uh, hss radiology um lastly the what was the just the biggest surprise uh for you thus far in, in medical school
1: so i think i wasn't surprised by the workload because everybody who had gone through it before kind of prepared me for that um and obviously there's hearing about it is different from actually going through it, but I was surprised by the amount of free time I had and the amount of time I, I still had to kind of pursue my hobbies and interests um, outside of school. So I would, I would definitely say to you as someone who's hopefully starting med school soon, um, don't think about it as consuming your life because it definitely won't. And um, you have to kind of consciously try to try to step out of, of the medical bubble um,
0: as often as you want. It's all about that work-life balance, right? Definitely, definitely. All right. Nile Patel, thank you so much for joining the show.
1: Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure.
0: That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.